How well do you like to be told what to do? Do you like to have someone constantly standing over you telling you this is what you must do? Uh, regardless of what your age is, regardless of what your position in life is, do you like to have those folks that like to just stand right over you and say this is what you have to do? As we think about this idea of community, one of the characteristics of community that sociologists talk about, that political scientists talk about, is in a true community, leadership is organic from the bottom up, as opposed to having a broad organization with someone at the very top that perhaps you've never seen tell you this is the way it's got to be. As we conclude today, our study in is the church a community. We want to look at this characteristic of leadership in the church. Is the church a community from the standpoint of the characteristic of leadership that we see in the church? And really, in some ways, the church doesn't meet that characteristic, but in some ways it does. So let's look at the scripture together and find out, is the church, the local church, a community? Do we have that organic leadership from within? This morning what I'd like us to think about, first of all, is the fact that Christ is the head of the church. But locally, we see church leadership in a different way. And I want us to think about our goals as the church at Benwick. Let's start by thinking about this idea of Christ is the head of the church. Outside of our facilities here, we have a sign on, the, on our building that says Church of Christ. Now, some people might look at that, well, that's just another denominational name. But I hope that we don't ever see it that way. First of all, that we never see it as a denominational name. But then we see it as a declaration of who is here. We are the church that belongs to Christ. We are the church that has been called out by Christ. And as a result of that, Christ is the head of the church. Jesus is the ultimate authority for what we do in this church and in this congregation. And in various congregations, hopefully that is the goal. That is the idea behind this phrase, Church of Christ. We are the church that belongs to Christ. Christ is our head. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, as Paul is meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's been told by the Holy Spirit, He's going to be arrested. He's going to be persecuted. And so he stops in this little town called Miletus. It's a seaport, and he, and he, not too far from Ephesus. And he asks the elders of the church at Ephesus to come and meet with him before he goes on to this final leg of the trip to Jerusalem. But notice what Paul says about the church in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, 
among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Did you notice that? The church is a body of people that God purchased with his own blood. Man, that verse has so many truths in it. We spent a whole time just talking, just talking about that one little verse. But what we want to focus on this morning is that Paul says that the church belongs to Christ because he purchased it with his own blood. So in a very real sense, the church belongs to Christ. And if we were to stop just right there, we would say, oh, the church is not a community because it is top-down in its authority structure because it belongs to Christ. Of course, there's more to it than just that. But you see, we do have an authority for what we do in Scripture, for what we do in the church, and it's based on the Scripture of God. Christ is the head of the church. In Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 through 23, Paul talks about the relationship that the church has with Jesus. Of course, in this context, I said Ephesians 5, and then Ephesians chapter 2. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1. I really messed that up. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul's telling these Christians that he really wants them to understand how much love God has for them and has for all folks. But we pick up in the middle of his comment in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. Notice what he says, Ephesians 1 verse 19. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? That's what I want you to know, Paul says. These are in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might which he brought about in Christ. Okay, so notice this, first of all. This is, his thought is centered in being in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. So we pick up this conversation that Paul's having, kind of mid-thought here, and his thought is, look, this is what God has done for you. This is how God has tried to show you his love for you. He did all these things in Christ. And then he's talking about Jesus, talking about Jesus Christ, and he says he, he took Jesus Christ after his death, burial, and resurrection, and he took him and placed him at his right hand. That is, God the Father placed Jesus at his right hand, placed him above all other forms of authority. And God gave him to be the head of the church. So God the Father made Jesus to be the head of the church. But then he says, which is his body. And he uses this analogy, Paul does, this, this body analogy. He uses it in several places in Scripture. <coughs> but he says, God's the head of the church, and the church is his body. You see, there's a different kind of connection there than just saying that someone is the head of an organization in New York or someone is the head of their organization in Chicago or some other, some other place or maybe here in Dallas. 
We understand that. You may never see that person. That person may never know about you. That person may never care about you other than you're serving a particular role. But the difference is Christ sees you and God sees you as his body. He cares for his body. That's the difference. And in fact, in Ephesians 5, he is going to use that analogy to say that Jesus cherishes and nourishes his body. And so Christ is the head, Paul says, in a very real sense. He guides us. He directs us. But he also nourishes, cherishes us, cares for us. But he is the head of the church. And as a result of that, we follow his leadership. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. In terms of his commandment to the apostles uh, of what they are to do and to say and teach. That's what he says, Matthew chapter 18, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Jesus says, when it comes to the things that you apostles are to teach, Teach these new folks, teach these new disciples everything that I taught you. And really what Jesus says is teach them to observe, that is to keep, practice these things, everything that I've taught you. So the words of Christ become the standard for what we are to do as a church, the things we are to teach, the way we are to conduct ourselves. And that becomes the basis of what we do. So in a very real sense, yes, the, the church does have a hierarchy. And that hierarchy is with Christ as the head. The things that we do and teach come from Jesus. And that's our hierarchy. In a very real sense, we live in a kingdom. We live in a monarchy. Now, as far as political science goes, that's not a good way to go. Unless your king is a loving king. And that's what we have. Consider this one last thought on this point. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. In this context, Paul is trying to encourage the church at Corinth with what the day of resurrection is going to be like. And he's talking with them about many, many things in this chapter. But really in verse 24, there's a nugget of truth that is often overlooked. But notice what he says. We'll start in verse 23 just to get the full sentence here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23. Paul says, but each in his own order. He's talking about the order of the resurrection. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he, that is Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished our rule and authority and power. And he goes on to talk about the fact that that is death. And when we all are raised from the dead, that's when God's power over death is, is uh, fully known. But our point for right now is to recognize that Jesus is currently reigning as king. The church is his kingdom. The church is his kingdom. And there's going to come a day in which Jesus returns, and he's going to take us all home, and he's going to hand the key, kingdom to his father and say, here you go, dad. 
here's your kingdom that you've had me run for you. And when we put it in those terms, Jesus is king. That's a different sort of structure than what most of us as Americans have ever experienced. But it ought to reinforce for us the idea of what it is that we're doing. We are following Jesus. He is our king. He is our head. And in that sense, we do have an authoritative structure. But aren't you so thankful to God that he's so loving, that he's so kind, that he cares for us, provides for us, gives us bountiful blessings as a song that we sung just a few minutes ago points out, count your many blessings? Man, what a better place. There is no better place to be than in the kingdom of God. But with that being said, we're talking about the church universal, and we are talking about the church locally too, as Jesus is our head. We don't get to make decisions about uh, how we're going to do different things if it's not based on the teachings of Christ. But when we begin to look at the local church, at how the church is organized under Jesus' head, we do begin to see a community, a community that is organic, a community that is led from the bottom up, so to speak. Notice how the church was organized in the first century as we begin to think about uh, what the church was supposed to be. Again, we go back to the very first passage that we looked at, Acts chapter 20 this morning. So turn once more to Acts chapter 20. And you notice, first of all, that we're introduced to these folks called shepherds or elders in Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> Notice, first of all, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, the context already laid for you. From Miletus, that is Paul, from Miletus he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So we have this idea, this term elders, and he sends for these elders of the church at Ephesus to come and, and meet him. And so they come and they meet with him and he, he, he talks with him and he tells them about what's going to happen to him. But notice what he says, beginning in verse 25. He says, And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom of God, will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on, God, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. He goes on to exhort them. But you see, Paul says, look, I'm about to leave, and it's not going to be pretty for me. But I want you to know that this is what God wants you to do. Now remember, they're elders... But he said, he has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God among you. Not to flock, not to shepherd other flocks, not to be in charge of other churches or other groups of churches, but just that church there in Ephesus that God had made them overseers. And their work was to shepherd that church, protect that church, lead that church, feed that church. All those things that shepherds do. And he says, I know there's going to be problems along the way. Even from among your own selves. As Paul is talking to those men, looking in their eyes, 
And they're looking in his eyes. He says, I know somebody here is going to be tempted to pull the disciples away from God and follow themselves. That's not very encouraging, is it? But he says, you need to be on guard because these bad things are going to happen. But you shepherd the church. Watch out for those bad things. Feed them, guide them. And so we're introduced to shepherds, and they have this responsibility. The relationship is not one of a cruel boss or authoritarian leading the church, driving the church to do something they don't want to do, or driving them in a bad direction. No, it's one of someone who cares for the church, who loves the church, who understands the responsibility that they have uh, to guard the church. Peter says basically the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5. Notice what Peter says there, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proven to be examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter says essentially the same thing that Paul does. Shepherd the church, shepherd the flock among you. Again, not other flocks, not other groups of flock, but just the flock among you. And do it by way of example. Do it by way of caring for them. Not bossing them around, not lording it over them but you're there to shepherd, to guide, to lead, to feed, to protect. And so they have that responsibility. And that's who is being the leaders of the church. We don't see them, any other group, having that responsibility. In Acts chapter 14, and verse 23, as Paul and Barnabas are on their second missionary journey, they go back to some of the churches that they've already been at, and it says that they appointed elders for them in every church. So you have a plurality of elders. It's not just one person, but you have this plurality of elders. And there's one passage that's very key to us as it relates to this idea of community, as it relates to the idea that leadership springs from within, and that's Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, you know this passage. This is when uh, there's a problem in the church at Jerusalem. And the problem is, is that you have two groups of women. Uh, one is uh, Christians of Jewish ancestry. Uh, and then you have probably from within Judea. And then you have some Hellenistic widows. So they're Jewish women that come from some of the Greek cities perhaps. And they're not being taken care of like the women that are Jewish women from Judea or from Jerusalem. And so there's a controversy in the church. Notice how they deal with this. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, uh, in number a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews uh, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Parcurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And so what we have here is a situation where uh, some of these women weren't being cared for, and it's to causing problems in the church. And the church brings the issue before the apostles. Organic, bottom-based leadership. They bring it to the apostles. And the apostles say, hey, look, guys, our job is to preach the word and in prayer. So let's fix this. And here's how we're going to fix this. Choose from among yourselves seven men who meet these qualifications. Trustworthy men, godly men, men who have this reputation. Everyone in the church already knew those men. And they said, here are some guys that we know are trustworthy men, filled with the Holy Spirit, men who have great reputations. And they brought these men back before the apostles. And the apostles say, okay, guys, we'll put these men in charge of this task. Now, the key word that's through this passage in the Greek text is diakonos, or the verb form, diakoneo. We're serving tables. That's where we get our term deacon from. And so they appointed these men for a physical task of making sure that all these widows were cared for. But a side note here is this is how we see the church organizing its leadership, so to speak. Finding those from within the church that already had these qualities and characteristics. And then saying, these are the men that we're going to put in charge of this task. Now that's deacons. But we see some of the same ideas when it comes to selecting elders. Elders have uh, to meet a certain criteria, a certain uh, standard. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we see this. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And what's interesting is we don't see the same process per se with elders. Uh, but Paul here links the appointing of elders and deacons together in this context. Notice what he says, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. Why don't you look at that word aspire? That literally means to stretch oneself forth. In other words, this is someone who's already doing these types of things. This isn't someone that's campaigning for it or someone that's jockeying for a position. It's just this is a guy that's already stretching himself forth. He's already putting himself out there to do these things. He says, verse 2, an overseer then must be. And that phrase must be then applies to all of these things. All of these things. He must be a man above reproach husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious. That means quick to fight. But gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? 
and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so they will not fall into reproach and in the snare of the devil. And then notice what Paul says, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be. And he lists some things for deacons. You see, he combines these two groups together. Well, he talks about the idea of, look, there are these two positions. These are, there are these two roles. And they both have to meet certain criteria or qualifications in order to serve in these roles. But you see, he takes these things before the congregation. These are men who are known for these qualities. These are men who already exhibit these things. It's not someone coming in saying, this is how it's going to be. A community doesn't work that way. A community works by doing things together, and as you do things together, you get to know each other. You get to know each other's abilities and qualities and characteristics, and you just naturally follow those leaders. And that's what we see here in the New Testament within the local church. Men who are already doing these types of things, stretching themselves forth to do these things. And Paul says, when you see that, make those men elders. Or really what he says is, if a man wants to be an elder, that's a good work he wants to do. He's already got these things. And the folks in the church know that. And the folks in the church can follow that leadership because they know these men, because they've seen them in action They've seen them conduct themselves in that way. Well, what are our goals as a church at Benbrook? Well, obviously, we want to follow the word and will of Jesus. We see Jesus as the head of the church. He is our king. We're going to follow what he says. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. If it doesn't match in consistency with the word of God, we're not going to do it. And we're only going to teach those things that match what the word of God says. But as a local church... We want to come to that day in which we have elders and deacons, if we will. We want to be able to have leadership spring forth from this congregation as men develop, as men grow, as men age, that can step into that role of serving as a leader in our church, whether it be as an elder or as a deacon. And we're not there yet. You look at some of these family qualifications. We have some great men in this congregation. These families just aren't there yet. Someday they will be. And as we continue to reach out and as we continue to uh, serve our community and we have other families to come into our congregation, we'll get there. We will get there. But we need men to stretch themselves forth. Begin doing those things that Paul talks about. Being men, if we were also to look at what Paul tells to Titus, men who are able to teach the word of God and, and, and confront those uh, who teach something contrary. Men who already serve with dignity and do things out of love for others. And not because they have some selfish gain in mind or any of those things. As we develop those men, we'll have that leadership. And they will guide us and they will feed us. Because they have a fear of God and they have a love of God. That's where we're going in this church. And that's what we'll accomplish because we are a community. As we've looked at the idea of community, there are people today that say we need to have more authentic communities in our country. We're losing a sense of community as Americans because we've moved miles and miles away from home. Or we, we move miles and miles away from work and, and we, we no longer have that sense of community. We need more communities. Well, folks, 
the church is a community. There are people today that are looking to belong to a community, a group of people that care for them and love them and are authentic neighbors. And that's the church. We want to be that church. We want to serve Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you too want to serve Christ. You need to be united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. Or maybe you have other needs that you want the church to be aware of. Whatever your need, won't you come? Together we'll stand and sing.